This episode of Roughneck Dispatch, we have the writer Alex Cizak. He's a writer and filmmaker from Indiana. He founded All Due Respect and Uncle B Publications. He is also the original creator and editor of the renowned journal Pulp Modern. Alec has written the novels Cool It Down, Breaking Glass, Manifesto Destination, and Down on the Street. He has had numerous novellas and short stories published, including the story collection Lake County Incidents. Alec founded the Independent Fiction Alliance, and he's got a new crime story uh, collection slated for release. It's called Nobody's Coming Home. We're going to talk about that today. Alec, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's great yeah, to definitely, be here. Yeah, definitely. We're glad to have you. Um, I'm going to start by giving a, a brief description of Nobody's Coming Home, the new story collection, crime fiction stories. Um, Nobody's Coming Home introduces readers to several doomed citizens from Lake County, Indiana. Their immutable characteristics defer. Their fates do not. Born under the hills of Uncle Sam's cruelest boots, they will struggle for a peek at daylight. Some might call these characters low lives. Some might call them losers. To dismiss them as beneath anyone else is to miss the beauty of the fight. The desire to sneak up and snatch the tiniest piece of the dying American dream. Um, I've had an opportunity to read the book. Um, love the cover, by the way. Just saw that when I originally read it. You hadn't had a cover uh, built out yet, but um, really beautiful. Um in the, in the crime fiction sort of way. Uh, can you talk about, just introduce us to the book. What are you trying to accomplish with the book? Um, where the stories come from? And uh, yeah, just give us kind of an overview. Well, uh, the stories rep, kind of represent the last, at least at this point, uh, the last of my, uh, what we used to call hardcore crime fiction stories. Uh, crime fiction has undergone some changes recently and stories that are a little bit, uh, you know, 10 years ago, the 10 to 15 years ago, the goal was to really try to capture the honest grime and violence and pain and all that that goes with crime. Crime is, um, it's, it's curious. So the, the traditional crime fiction involving mysteries and cozies and stuff like that is one thing. And I, I respect writers of that and fans of that, but the kind of crime fiction that I've been doing for the last you know, almost 20 years, the kind of crime fiction that I wanted to see it all due respect, I think it's fallen out of favor as has a lot of um, honesty in art and popular culture in, in the last few years. Um, I, could, I could spend three hours explaining why that's happened. So I'm, I'm just kind of moving on as a writer, and I just wanted to put together one last collection. Uh, Lake County, the three cities or three little towns that you see in Nobody's Coming Home and Lake County Incidents, and even in a few stories in Crooked Roads, which is almost 10 years old now. Um, there are three towns that I made up that are based on towns in that area. My, my grandparents lived there when I was growing up. And so I, I have a, an outsider's view of that area and that area has changed radically in the last 10 years. Um, the cost of living in Chicago is so outrageous that many people are moving to that region and it has, it's changed the demographics, it's changed the economics, uh, it's changed everything. 
And uh, Nobody's Coming Home kind of reflects that. By the end of the book, we see that the demographics are almost completely different. Um, so most of those stories are written between 2015 and now okay. and pu published in various places. And what I did when I put the collection together, I, um, I just altered a few things so that uh, they all revolve around kind of the same four or five characters. So there's no overriding story arc that's taking place, but we will see those characters throughout the collection and see how they do evolve. And of course, in most cases, the, that evolution is not, uh, shall we say, healthy. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I think in describing the book, just for, for readers and listeners, it's, I, I guess you could call it a series of loosely connected stories by character and geography, um, but also thematically. Um, and so I, I think you, hit, you said a lot there, so you hit on a lot of things, but you talked about moving on as a writer. I want to ask, do you mean you're going to start writing in a different genre? Is that, that's the direct question I have for you. Uh, possibly. Um, I, I feel like maybe I've been a little bit cowardly in not trying to write uh, something that's a little bit more mainstream. Although I, I will admit that every time I've tried to write mainstream, it still isn't mainstream. For instance, just as an example, I've been trying since like 2007 to get a story into Alfred Hitchcock. And in the 2000s, Alfred Hitchcock still ran the occasional just straight up crime story. So it's usually mysteries, but there was always one or two just crime, just flat out crime like like Jim Thompson, like everybody, everybody loves Jim Thompson or um, what's it, the guy that wrote uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. I forget his name right now. George, George Higgins. B. Higgins. Yep. Yeah. And um, I. I've tried for years and years to get a story in there. And I finally, you know, I finally, I, I cleaned up everything. Uh, there was no profanity. Uh, any sex took place off stage. But what I finally realized is that just the subject matter really just rubs the mainstream the wrong way. Um, sure. I don't, I, I don't know why that is. Cause it seems like there was a time when, when Americans were, at least a good portion of the population were interested in stuff that was a little bit more raw and, and grimy. But I, I, I think, uh, and I guess I'm getting off topic here, but I think that, um, with the, uh, with the takeover of our government by corporations, hmm. I think people inherently know that life has become so awful and programmed that they want absolute entertainment. And that's, that's why we have just nothing but comic book movies and, and sure. uh, stuff that is so polished and so far removed from reality. Now that doesn't mean that I'm going to write something like that. It just, I've, I've been flirting with a different idea, a few different ideas um, about what I, what direction I want to go. And I may not be done with crime fiction. I don't know. Yeah. But the, the last few years um, have been kind of awful as far as I'm concerned for crime fiction, the uh, it's funny, the, the collection Crooked Roads that was published in 2015, if that were published today, uh, the alt-right folks or whatever you want to call them, they would, they would say, oh, this is woke shit. This is woke bullshit. Right. 
And, um, and I, I progressed past that at that point. Uh, and I've, I've kind of lost my, my, my point here, but, um, it's, it's just, uh, crime fiction has gotten at least in the, in the realm that I used to exist in, it's gotten so kind of preachy and condescending and didactic. And for the time being, I don't want to be a part of that. I, sure. I just want I just want to entertain. Um, I'll, I'll just say one more thing here. I, I recently, uh, I wrote a little horror story and, um, I showed it to my wife. My wife is always my first reader. And when she was done with it, she said, uh, what's the point? What's the message? And I, I, I gave her a big hug because that's exactly the reaction I want at this point. I am not interested in preaching to anybody and giving any kind of message. I just want to entertain. Sure. Yeah. Well, I don't think, yeah. I mean, I was all, I've always learned as a, craftsman as a writer for me i don't think there's no good writing that's didactic that's teaching people things like almost none of it is ever good um i've never experienced anything that's good in that way so i agree with you around the message piece it's it ends with the audience right like what meaning are you making from the work um it's not about what it means it's about what you're what meaning do you make so i completely agree with you and i have seen that as well. Um, you've been in, well, I don't want to steer too far astray from the book for just now, but I want to ask you more about the crime fiction evolution. But so these stories to me, I would call them straight noir stories, crime stories. Like this should be translated into the French and France will buy it. (laughs) Like that's, that's the way I see it. Um, and yeah, the stories are about characters who are really outside of institutions who are um, loners in some cases, derelicts, um, people uh, on the other on the dark in the dark shadows of society for a variety of reasons, um, not always their fault, quote unquote. Um, and I, you know, it's funny. I found the collection vastly entertaining and interesting. Um, some of the stories do sort of, I think, I don't know if you agree with this, but verge on the satirical because. We're looking at society and I mean, the first story, well, you have a number of stories where there's especially men who are just kind of like glued to the video games or just like, like I would call them losers, you know, like, Hey man, grow up living with mom and dad into their thirties. Um, so I guess, would you agree that there's some satire in these stories? Like you're, 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 you're looking at society and trying to document what's happening in in a fictional truth realm that that sounds really weird, but does that make sense? Well, I, I think that what you're seeing is um, a, an issue I've dealt with for a long time. So uh, when uh, I was in Hollywood in the early two thousands, I had an agent. So last time I had an agent and he said, um, he said the strongest part of the scripts I was writing was the humor. And he tried to get me to just write comedy and uh that became a problem i can't consciously do that but if i'm just writing about things that i see in society i think there's some natural humor there and it may it may just be a way to cope with the ridiculousness of it it's i think it's an accident that there are a lot of characters who still live with with their mothers i think it's primarily the mothers 
It is. Uh, there's at least two main characters two, throughout for the sure. book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that has become something today. I, I have a younger sibling who will turn 36 next year, and she still lives with my parents, and she's never moved out. Uh, I have a friend that I grew up with uh, who she's two years older than me. She has never left home. She And now she and her mother are basically in a symbiotic relationship. Her mother needs her. She needs her mother. And there's, yeah, I don't know that it's a terror. There are some cultures around the world where this is a normal thing. You, sure. you never leave the family. Uh, but the United States, we, at least at one time, we had a different kind of culture. And, and let's be honest, the economy has made it so that's very difficult for younger, especially younger people, uh, some of them to get a, a foothold. I, I think that this country grooms, I don't want to use that word in the wrong way, but it grooms dreamers. It makes It makes people dreamers. And sometimes dreamers, I know because I kind of used to be one. I, it took me a long time to grow up. And uh, it, uh, it, it makes it difficult for, for dreamers to enter the real world. And, you know, I don't like, I, I just, I don't know what, what my friend who still lives with her mother, I don't know what her plan was 30 years ago, but I guarantee it wasn't to be living with her mother when she's in her mid fifties. Sure. Um, and this is, this is happening all over the country. If people all over the country whose children are middle-aged and are not moving out. So it's, it's very strange. Uh, it's, it's, it's an accident, though, that I, I wasn't being astute or anything. I just accidentally stumbled on that. Yeah, I mean, but there are other things about society in the book, right? I mean, I think I, you know, I don't want to give away plot points because all the stories are just exceedingly well done and, and really interesting. I think if I was to say the most positive thing about them, they're interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, you almost feel like a voyeur watching or, you know, reading these stories because it, they're, you know, you're very intimate with the characters, the things you're, you're talking about in their lives are intimate things. Um, and you know, you call them crime stories and they are right. They're crime stories, but they're also literary stories. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, I love that. I, I think it is interesting though, based on what you said earlier to think about art reflecting life Um, but then you're throwing in that element, which I think you're alluding to of what's probably been happening for quite some time now is self-censorship around Mm. certain ways of speaking about society, uh, amongst artists, very specifically amongst writers and writers in the genres, uh, specifically even more so in crime. Um, so I'm, you know, you talked about crooked roads and how things have changed for you, but have you found yourself second guessing what you're going to be writing or how you're going to be writing about things just in the current state of society? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, and I am incapable of giving a quick answer, but, um, I will say, um, in 2014, uh, I think it was 2014, David Cranmer published a story called the Rouse at third in Vermont that I wrote about some homeless people in LA that I knew. And that story was filled with profanity because that's how those people talked. And somebody wrote in the comment section or something on the blog or something told David, 
oh, you shouldn't publish this filth. It's, it's profane. He's just trying to sound tough. And he's not, he sounds stupid. And of course I thought, well, I think that that person is stupid, but, um, Scott Parker, Scott D. Parker, who I'm not particularly great friends with, but, uh, he made a comment at the time. He said, I've never written anything that couldn't be on television. And of course I was still, uh, I was, I was still at a place where I was like, well, don't tell me, uh, I can't write profanity or I can't you know, don't tell me what to write or whatever. But it was one of those comments that stuck under my my skin for a long time. And I thought, again, going with the whole Alfred Hitchcock idea, I thought, well, uh, what if I did clean things up a little bit on the surface? I bet I, I could sneak in a lot more under the radar. Because the moment people see the profanity and and shocking words and whatnot, they uh, half the audience will turn away. Half the audience will love it. Half the audience will turn away. Say, I don't want to read this. Uh, but if you don't um, meet them at the gates that way, they might go along for the ride. And then maybe by the end, maybe they might pick up on the fact that they are looking at something they wouldn't normally choose to. Um so I would say to some degree, I, I have tried to navigate a course that looks cleaner, but isn't at all. Uh, but that, I don't always do that. There's lots of profanity in Nobody's Coming Home. Um, there's um, a couple of years ago, I put out a collection of novellas with two other writers called L.A. Stories. And uh, my contribution to that is extremely profane because the story calls for it. So, so what I would wrap up all that saying is if the story calls for it, I'll put it there. I'll, I will not censor myself. But if I feel like it's more beneficial to move things under the radar, I might uh, uh, do what you're sort of what you're talking about. I think uh, one of the things you're talking about is maybe walking the the tightrope as far as what we used to call political correctness. Right. But I'll be honest with you, that is never a concern of mine. Sure, I political correctness or whatever you want to call it, it has a different name every five years. It is a kind of puritanical fascism, and I will not adhere to it at all. And I sure. people will say, well, it's just being polite. No, it's not. <laughs> it's 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 a form of control it's for control freaks and if there's one thing i can't stand it's control freaks sure yeah i think i think your answer to that question is really good um because you parse those things out and i think that's important i think what you what you're first talking about initially as you say it to me it just sounds like refined craftsmanship right a different a, a more refined type of artistry that's um seducing readers to reading something that they wouldn't normally perhaps, um, or engaging with perspectives they wouldn't normally like people who are, uh, you know, down and out in society, they might not read that story. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I love that. I think about the, the totality of the stories in this particular collection. Um, you know, I think the stories are arranged in such a way that it's probably striking a great balance there, right? Between that initial you that was around and like the you now that's maybe more of a, I don't want to say a refined craftsman, but maybe, or a refined curator of one's own work maybe is a better way of saying it. 
Um, so I love the way the stories are put together. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think sometimes I, I want to go back to what you said about society being sort of like people just want to be entertained. Um, I agree with that. What's really unsettling to me is how, how they they want their entertainment to be so, um, predictable and sort of vanilla. And that is where, cause I, I'm, you know, I'm all about, I just went to a horror film festival and it's like, I want to see monsters and I want to see blood and gore. That's what I'm expecting and what I want. But so I understand that aspect of being an audience member or a reader, but I don't understand this sort of clinging to one's very um, vanilla perspective on what a piece of art should be. Um, I wonder how you feel about that. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm opposed to, and this, this does, uh, carry over from your previous question. I, I am opposed to anyone dodging subject matter, uh, or, uh, dodging directions they might take in their work simply because they, they don't want to ruffle any feathers. Um, it's, it's weird, uh, today, you hear the word contrarian and it's used like a pejorative. And I'm, I'm like, didn't, aren't the contrarians throughout history, aren't they the ones who are actually responsible for progress? Uh, you know, getting everybody to realize that the universe does not revolve around the sun. That was an important step, you know? And, right. and of course that's a, that's a huge, you know, uh, example to go to, but, um, uh, yeah. The other thing is that some people might say that their idea of, or our idea of what's vanilla to them is not vanilla at all. Um, I guess that's true. You know, the, the, the I have to be careful. <laughs> I don't want to, I, I don't want to piss people off, but the, uh, the cons for, so a great example today is an awful lot of books in many genres and literary fiction are overly concerned with lecturing the reader about the ills of racism. And I feel like at this point in American history, uh, most of us are not racists and those who are, you're not going to change them. So to continue with the uh, sort of preschool, Sunday school lectures about being nice, it's, you, you see this all, you see signs on lawns that say, just be kind. N not only is it condescending and didactic and all that, but it's, uh, there's something passive aggressive about it. And to, to constantly, constantly harp on that, um, that to me is vanilla. That's a, that's a lesson I've, my whole life, that's what half of the popular culture has been about is telling people to be nice to each other. I get it. Yeah. Right. Like, like there's other things going on in life. Um, but there's some people, and I, I think probably young people, younger people, uh, to them, it's still a very radical idea to tell people to be nice to each other. And there is something to be said about that. Every, every time in history, somebody has gotten a huge, here's a word I hate, a huge platform and said, hey, 
let's try love instead of war, uh, they're usually killed. So there is something radical about it. I'll grant that. But um, there's other things. There's other things to talk about. Um, We have, you know, not only do we live in a country where uh, our, our primary profits are made by war, we now also live in a country where the primary profits are made by pharmaceuticals, uh, many of which are basically poison. And uh, that's something that needs to be talked about. Uh, The fact that we, that we still, that, that war is still a thing in 2023. I mean, I sound like a hippie now, but I'm just, that's baffling to me that, that people can't work out their differences any other way. And to, to take on those industries, to me, that's dangerous. That's radical. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I also think one of the, the reasons for, I mean, you mentioned the signs, right. And things like that, or the t-shirt or, or what have you. Um, I think those things are so easy. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like they are just yeah. so easy to do. And I think the main, what I've experienced in my personal life is that the main reason for people to do those things, um, is to make themselves feel better. And so that is not a productive way to, to change the world. I don't think, um, in fact, I know, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the opioids is a really great example mm-hmm. where, you know, have we had enough crime fiction about that? Mm-hmm. I don't know that we have. I mean, I'm thinking of your book, breaking glass. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like you're talking about this stuff. Uh, there's a story in this particular, uh, and nobody's coming home about it's the first story. The mom, you know, Caesar's son, I'm not going to give it away, but Caesar's son, and he's playing video games and doing something really bad. And, you know, she's well, I'm just going to go back and have another Bud Light. She pops the the fridge and drinks a Bud Light. And so alcohol is another Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and yeah, of course, war. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think I've written books with veterans uh, and clearly like PTSD is, is part of what's happening in the book. And um, I've actually been very surprised by some reader responses to those characters. And it's like, you don't like this person. This is from where he comes. This is what society's done. Um, and so I agree with you there too. And, and the only thing war does really is harm young people. It appears, um, and everyone else involved with it. But yeah, I mean, that's where I think, that's where I think too, to you, to maybe an earlier point you made is like, what's the point? Right. What's the point? I mean, you, even if there's no message, you're documenting something with, with fiction that's, that's happening, some type of some human psyche or um, maybe not events, but emotional occurrences. So I really appreciate that answer. And, and you know, maybe it will upset people, but it's like, I, I just, I don't think it's help. Some of these actions and this preachiness is not helping anyone in society. I don't think that I know. Well, Maybe I'm wrong. yeah, it's, well, it contributes to the, uh, what they might call the infantilization, if that's a word, infantilization of society, mm. because it is, uh, these are lectures that, uh, preschoolers get right. Play nicely sure. with your neighbor. Um, adults don't need those lectures. At least they, they used to not need them. Another thing I'll say in defense, though, uh, because I I do like to try to consider everyone's point of view, 
And in defense of those writers, and the, the reason that I, I used to be the same way, I used to I used to say, well, I'm going to write about, um, you know, the uh, I had a story in Crooked Roads called uh, Dumb Shit, which was about some roofers in Indianapolis who were pissed off because uh, migrant laborers had taken had taken their jobs, quote unquote. They hadn't, obviously. It's the contractors who decide who they're going to hire. Sure. Uh, and I was like, well, this, this is a, a statement about you know, who we should really be like the, the working class should be united. Um, and who we blah, should blame. Blah, blah. Yeah. And it took me a while to realize that comes from the wonderful and pernicious influence of Rod Serling. And, and a lot of us writers, I think, don't recognize how influential he was in shaping the way we think of stories. Because if you watch Twilight Zone, which is a one of the greatest, probably one of the top three all-time television shows. I mean, they are preachy. They are really preachy. They're great. The photography's great. The acting's great. Usually the dialogue is great. And if it was written by Richard Matheson or Charles Beaumont, usually the story is great. Well, there's a couple that were written by Serling where you just want to grab his ghost and say, get off, get off the, the soapbox. Like, Mm. And and I think that that had a, a big influence on everybody that came after him, and I I think that's one of the things that's still driving this uh, this kind of didactic fiction. And it's that's, the other thing is the other thing is I think you said it's easy, it's yeah. easy to to make a story that uh, you know where the the moral is be nice, like that's that's so easy. Uh, there's no challenge there. You're not going to ruffle any feathers, uh, except for like the alt-right get pissed off about that. But, you know, you're not going to, it's not the same as if you, you know, you write about, say, a a paraplegic CEO who, who puts people out of their homes. Uh, Well, well now you've, you've crossed several boundaries and um, you've, you've made somebody who's supposed to be a victim into a villain. Uh, Now you're really you're headed into territory that's controversial and unfortunately controversy is interesting, I guess, like real controversy. Yeah. I I wish it weren't that way. Like I said, I wish we were all just telling stories. Right. Oh, well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're definitely not going to solve the issues, but yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think, I think the big point from a craftsmanship perspective is just, stuff that's overly didactic. One, I think it is easy. I think you're completely right about that. Stories with a moral, you know, it's easy Mm -hmm. to craft and structure those stories. Um, And then they don't really challenge people in the way that literature should, at least from my belief. And it sounds like yours. And um, there's those of us who just can't write in that way. And I think that's good. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think that you're probably one of those writers as well. Um, I think that you are from what I've read. and I, you'll probably stay that way. You know, I, I don't, I think the commercial aspect is, I, th- I think it's interesting. I, I read something by, it was like a, oh gosh, it was like a feature on Tom Hanks or something. And they were kind of trying to parse like, oh, you've done these really meaningful movies. And then you've done like the commercial stuff like Da Vinci Code. And he's like, hey, my thing is like, there is commerce and it's okay to do commerce as long as you don't try to pass it off as real art. And I thought there was a lot of value to that statement. It's like, okay, just don't do commerce and try to tell me it's real art. And don't say, you know, you love real art if all you consume is commerce. Um, mm. And so 
you know, there's, there's a place for both, but, but yeah, it's interesting to think about. Um, I was, you also edited the anthology weren't another other way to be. It's a Waylon Jennings, uh, inspired, uh, collection of outlaw fiction that recently came out. Um, I was reading your introduction and I want to read some of it if, if that's okay. But also you've been in the crime fiction scene, as you call it for more than 20 years now started all due respect, which eventually became a publisher of pulp fiction. That is, I think still the best catalog of crime fiction going personally. I'm part of that catalog, but I still think it is. I mean, they published Jay Kingston's the deepening shade. Um, you know, it's tons of great books. Um, they published Pablo to stare. Who's a guy who nobody reads, which I don't understand. Um, but uh, I, I, I should make it clear real quick. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Um, so my involvement with all due respect, um, was just, I created the website or the, the blog, the initial blog where every, every month there was a new writer and they got yep. all due respect by being up for a month. Then I handed it off to Chris Radigan when I started Pulp Modern. He's the one who really made all due respect what people know today. I, I have to give him credit because uh, he, he turned it into something I never imagined it would become. So, yeah, I mean, all due respect to Chris for sure. Uh, edited yeah. my first few books. He's a fantastic editor and curator knows the crime fiction scene. Um, and, and just history. But I think my ultimate point is like, you know, you started that and you saw a gap. And so I think my question to you is, um, gosh, what is my question? Maybe just if you could talk a little bit about the 20 years and how that has, uh, changed your life, if at all. And some of the great books that, you know, you've liked over the years, whether it's commercial or not. Um, and just, yeah. What, how does that translate into what you're doing with Pulp Modern now, even though, yeah, maybe that's a question. That's a long question, but I'd like you to talk about that trajectory, that 20 years. It's important. Yeah, I guess if we if we go back to when I wrote Manifesto Destination, then it is over 20 years. Um, I think that I really became known um, around 2007 or 2008. I, like a lot of people, my first stories, crime stories, were published in uh, Twist and Noir, and then eventually Beat to a Pulp, and I had I had one in Thuglet. Um, and, uh, all of that back then there was like 2000 from 2007 to 2012, there were so many markets. It was amazing. And I had, uh, the reason that that happened around that time was I've always, since I was a kid, I wanted to write horror, uh, but I didn't want to write anything that wasn't scary. And so I'd been searching and searching for decades, you know, for what's scary and what isn't. In the meantime, I really liked uh, hard-boiled crime fiction. I love the language, like the Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler kind of language. That's where Manifesto Destination came from. Uh, and I thought, well, I could be a crime writer, but I didn't want to write mysteries and I didn't want to write police procedurals. And so I was, I was, while I was working in the movies and writing scripts, I was, as a fiction writer, I was kind of uh, in a, in a, corner. I didn't know what to do. And then I discovered around, I think it was 2006 or 2007, I, I went to the mystery bookstore in, in Westwood. And I was just looking around, I was looking around and I stumbled onto uh, Pop 1280 by Jim Thompson. And yeah. Oh, yeah. There, are, there are books you read in your life as a writer 
that uh, like your brain is just this, it's this multi thing of, of compartments that need, that need the doors kicked down. And that was a book that kicked down a door. And I realized, oh, I, crime fiction is, of course, it's about crime. And, uh, and it can just be about crime. It doesn't have to be solving it or, or any of that. Um, and uh, that's what got me going. Um, early on, I realized uh, that as much as I like these sites, like uh, Beat to a Pulp and Twisted Noir and Powder Burn Flash and Crime Factory, all those, um, I didn't feel like they were pushing things far enough as far as subject matter and the, like I said, the honesty, the, the brutal honesty about it. So that's why I started All Due Respect. Uh, the idea was just pure hardcore crime fiction and uh, some early stories that I think really hit the notes that I was looking for. Uh, this guy, I think his name is Mike Toomey, and he wrote a story about some guys who rough up a guy in a wheelchair. Um. And I already back then I was like, well, this is, you're not supposed to write this. So I'm going to publish it. Hmm. And, uh, and then Scotch Rutherford had a story. Um, I forget the name of it. I just, I re I reprinted it a couple of years ago at, at Pulp Modern. Um, but it, uh, again, it was, there, there were no filters. Yeah. And, uh, so those two stories, if you go back and you look in the very beginning of all due respect on the blog site, those two stories to me really represent what it was I was hoping to see all the time. Of course, um, you know, when, when you, when you edit something like that, or you edit an anthology, like the Wayland anthology, you have like an idea in your head, what kind of stories you want to see, but then you have to slowly realize uh, other writers are not the same, right? They're not, they don't have the same worldview. They're not interested in the same things, but if you have a basic theme, whether it's hardcore crime or, or songs based on, or, I mean, stories based on, you know, song titles by Waylon Jennings or whatever, uh, you have to kind of step back and start to compromise and, and look for, look for what's uh, special about an individual story uh, as opposed to what it is you're looking for. So, I mean, for instance, you have a story in the Waylon anthology that uh i don't think would be published most other places um, oh it wouldn't be published anywhere yeah <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, yeah you're writing about interracial an interracial relationship um without any bullshit so it's not it's not like a, a disney after school special or anything it's it's just what it is i guess that's what it comes down to right it's like it's fantasy versus what it is right that's the difference between vanilla crime fiction and what I would call real crime fiction. Sure. Yeah. I think what comes to mind too, when you said that is I'm reminded of uh, this idea that, you know, the individual artist, that voice is the most important thing in hmm. society because an intrusive society will try to squash that. And it's those individuals, it's not groups, it's individuals that speak out, that stop bad things, that do great things and groups latch on afterwards. And so I think, um, that the voice of the individual artist is incredibly important in the introduction about Waylon. You talk about what he did. I mean, I think country today is really interesting because it's, I call it, I have a buddy who calls it hick pop and that's mm -hmm. basically what it is. Um, and 
you know, someone like him is probably just looking down going, man, what the hell is this? And even back then he was. So Mm. it's that individual artist who turns away and turns toward what's truthful that, that can make a difference. Um, so yeah, I love that. That's a a really great. Well, and, and I think that we're, we're in a dangerous time because those, those are the artists who, who keep things interesting. And those, those artists are, are, like you said, they're being squashed. I'll say in, in, uh, the, the crime fiction quote unquote community, there are two times where I read a story by somebody and realized this person has a raw talent. It's, it needs to be refined a little bit. They need to uh, develop as writers. Um, but both those ins- it was Scotch Rutherford story and uh, Tia Janae, the writer. Yeah. Called Tia Janae. Uh, she had a story in Tough Two, uh, which I had a story, and that's the only reason I stumbled across her work. And, uh, in both instances, they just stuck out so much. They're so different from what everybody else was doing. And it's very curious to me that in both those instances, the uh, purveyors of what we call, or what I'm calling vanilla crime fiction, they pushed them out. They yeah. squashed them. And so, mm-hmm. so Scotch was publishing, um, why am I blanking on the title? of the Switchblade. Of the, Switchblade. Right. And so there was a situation with that, which he details in Pulp Modern a couple issues ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if anybody's interested in that, he really lays it out really great. Um, and yeah, I think it's an active censorship of a person. Tia is really interesting. So she had the, the, the book last year, Ghost on the Block, Ghosts on the Block Never Sleep, which was seemingly coming out and then didn't come out um, that I can find anywhere to locate it. So I don't know... Um, if you but, know much about that or can even talk about it. Um, but I'd like to know, cause I want the book. Yeah, it, it did. It did come out very briefly. Um, there were, I've never experienced this before. Um, there were endless, endless problems with KDP on that book. Uh, Tia is, um, she's going to hate me for saying this, but she's a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Uh, she thinks that, she was specifically targeted. I do think that um, they have a bot. They probably have a robot that goes through the text and counts the number of naughty words. And you can imagine what kind of naughty words appeared in her book because she, again, she's like a great writer has no filter. You you go back to uh, Henry Miller. The reason that Henry Miller has lasted this long is because he had no filter. Sure. Tia has no filter. And so the truth comes out. There might be, there might be a lot of hyperbole and um, some, some other stuff with it, but the truth is there. Um, And I think that they probably, they were nervous about that book, maybe because of the language in it. Now she's from Chicago. She's a, well, you know, she's an African-American woman. Uh, there's a certain word that she is allowed to use that most of us are not uh, by society's rules. And I think that the, that robot that, that Amazon uses, I think it caught that, uh, that word probably several hundred times. And, it, and they just they made it very difficult 
to uh, distribute that book for some reason. And finally, she got fed up and threatened to sue them or something. I don't know. She had a, she says she had a lawyer call them. And so they just took the book off. So I, I think, you know, I think there's maybe 33 copies, roughly 33 copies floating around the world of, of Tia's book. Uh, I, I imagine at some point, hopefully in the future, she will find another publisher for it. And uh, everybody can judge for themselves. I just, you know, it's, it's weird to me. Somebody, one of the, the uh, prominent names in that group of vanilla crime writers referred to her on Twitter as, quote, a garbage human. And there was no, mm. there was no repercussions for that. Uh, it's very strange to me that some people get to be unkind mm. without repercussions, whereas uh, other people just say the truth and they get punished for it. Yeah. Uh, but this is, this is not just within crime fiction. This is happening everywhere. I oh, mean, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. yeah. I mean, it's just because we're writing in that genre. We sort of know the ins and outs or some of them, but yeah, 33 copies. Yeah. And for people who don't know who are listening, KDP is Kindle direct publishing, which is, is, you know, what a lot of publishers use to publish books to on Amazon for, for readers to, to purchase. So I think if, you know, the, the moral here is <laughs> if we can just be didactic is, uh, if you think you have access to all the art you should at all times in your life, that is incorrect. And it's not true. Um, I know for a fact, a book that should be published, that's not, and we just talked about it. Uh, why is that? That's really interesting and doesn't seem very healthy to me for a free society. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's upsetting. Um, well, and, and the, the main in mainstream publishing, all they talk about is how they want diverse voices. And, and they want to hear from what they call writers of color. Sure. And uh, occasionally they will publish, they'll publish one or two writers who are outside the normal or the traditional realm, I should say. And, uh, but here comes Tia Janae, who really is really showing us something that, that most people, especially readers, might not see. They don't want that. They don't want that. I mean, cause she sent the book to some mainstream agents and whatnot to, in, mm -hmm. in attempts to get it published. And they all said, Oh, we, we can't publish this. Mm. So it, it's, um, it's strange because with KDP, these books should be published. There, there is, you know, it's the, the possibility for independent art today is greater than it's ever been. Right. But I guess the the channels of distribution make it so that the the, the big boys, the big dogs, can still suppress um, the good stuff. Uh, I, I think back to the 1980s when uh, you know when I was a teenager. If I wanted to find music that was not being played on the radio, I could go to small local record stores in Indianapolis. We had the Karma Records and Trax Records. And they dealt in a lot of what was then called alternative music, which yep. alternative meant alternative to the radio. It's not played on the radio. That changed in the 90s. But that's how you found the, the good stuff back then. And it was there. It, was, it, it wasn't too much of a hassle to go find it. Uh, but now you really you have to search for it. Now there's, there's lots of great art being made today. There's great music being made. There's great movies. There's great books being written, 
Uh, but you have to go on an Indiana Jones kind of search for it. You know, yeah. you have to go on an archaeological dig on the internet. Um, and maybe that's for the best. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe you're right. I mean, hmm. you know, or, you know, there are instances where, I mean, there is a lot accessible out there on the internet. I think what probably what Amazon does, I mean, I know they do this is, they can just, you know, the algorithms sort of feed to the lowest common denominator of art and put it in front of people knowing you're going to click and buy it. And it's, you know, so it becomes the lowest common denominator, whereas books like yours and mine aren't going to really, not going to feed the algorithm in that way. And certainly not Tia's book. Um, so yeah, that's, that's happening as well in the same way that we've seen Google and Microsoft limit search results, curate search results, right? Uh, and so I think the same thing happens on these platforms where you're seemingly trying to discover art. But now that I have you on this topic, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want to ask about independent bookstores and how your experience has been around selling books there. I think the biggest friction point for sort of underground writers is the non-returnable aspect of book book print runs or publishing on demand. Um, I'm curious cause you're with uncle B now running that. I know you have published a number of books, including books of poems. Um, are you navigating that at all? Or are we just doing hand to hand sales? Are we, I'm, I'm just curious on your thoughts on how that's going and where you see some of the pain points to use a businessy term. Yeah. Um, I don't, encounter many independent bookstores anymore. I know they still exist. Uh, when I lived in Missoula, I was able to get books in Shakespeare and Company, which was a very good local small bookstore. And, um, you know, the there's only one big player in town anymore. It's B. Dalton. Or not, <laughs> I would say B. Dalton. <laughs> it's Barnes, Barnes and, and Noble. Noble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they like to, um, they've always done this. I used to work at, at B. Dalton back in the 90s. Um, when they return books, they rip the cover off. And then they return the cover and they get rid of the books. Or what we used to do is we take the books to like a retirement home and, you know, let the, let the residents uh, choose what they wanted to read. But, uh, or we'd take the books. If there's a book I wanted to read, I'd take it home. Um, of course, I, I find that appalling ripping the cover off of a book. Um, and they, and of course they won't, they won't take a KDP book, uh, unless it's very special circumstances. Uh, I think if you know the local buyer, you can maybe get around that. It's kind of a dragon at the gate. Um, but I, yeah, with uncle B I've mostly just sold through, uh, Amazon, or I'll t tell the writers, I'll, I'll get them the uh, discounted copies and they can sell it any way they want today. I would say that you're, if you're an independent writer or you're an independent artist of any kind, your best bet is doing it uh, the way the, the gangster rappers used to do it. And that's selling out of the trunk. Of your car. Out of the, yeah. Out of the trunk of your car. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a trying time. Um, you know, the, uh, I hate to, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I don't think it is. You know, you just, we, the, like four or five corporations bought everything 
They bought everything from news outlets to record companies to movie studios. That's why, I mean, your, your friend who calls uh, what they now call country erroneously, I think, uh, what, they, what they call, the reason they call it hick, what is it? Hick pop. Hick pop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hick pop. Yeah. It's the, the guy, at, or it's usually a guy, I'm sure, at the, at the end of the, the desk of the big company that owns all the other little companies. In his mind, he thinks, uh, I want the biggest audience possible, so I need things that I can, I want country music that I can market also to a pop station, yeah, to an adult contemporary station. Um, sure. And I, I need books that appeal to everybody, that don't have, so like the idea of a niche audience, that, that doesn't register in their mind. Sure. They are not interested in that at all. Um, and you have other things going on, but I, like, I think that's a, that is a humongous dragon to slay is this, uh, this behemoth corporate mindset that, uh, everything has to be the same so that they can make a profit off of it. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to the need to make a profit. That's fine. But we also need to have, we need to have things, we need to have real diversity. Yeah. actual diversity, which we, we don't have uh, at, at any um, significant accessible level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think of the perspective in a lot of your stories. I mean, those people don't get written about uh, mm. in mainstream fiction. So um, I've had you for this hour for a wide ranging conversation. I appreciate it. Well, the one last thing I want to ask you about, if, if I may, is the Independent Fiction Alliance. Um, I've been involved mm. with it as well. And you sort of started it. Um, my understanding was that as a, uh, and I'll just say what I think and then you can correct me, uh, is, is like, uh, an alliance of fiction writers, publishers, uh, supporters who can work together to, um, further the mission of getting crime, you know, not crime, but fiction, uh, independent voices out into the public. Uh, is that right? What am I missing? I'm sure it's more wide ranging than that. That is the basic mission. And then uh, th this is something that I started talking about, I think, around. Well, I've had the idea for a long time, but I think uh, you and I talked about it maybe somewhere in 2019 because you're the one that came up with the idea of some sort of symbol. And then when, you know, in 2020, there was uh, there was just a massive push for censorship in crime fiction. Um, they, these people wrote to A.B. Patterson telling him he's not allowed to write what he wants to write. It's the most inane thing I've ever seen uh, other writers, so-called writers, uh, say, you do, that they suggest that they're going to tell another writer what he can write. Like it's, I, I have to really control my, my, the language I use here because it's, uh, I've never seen anything like it. So in 2020, um, I was talking because that's when they came after Switchblade and Scott Rutherford. Um, and he and I talked about it. And I said, well, I've been wanting to put, you know, this this IFA thing together. And um, part of the mission became to combat censorship. Hmm. And um, but to me, the real like the ultimate goal is to find a way to get independent books in front of mainstream eyes. Hmm. It's a great challenge. And uh, as you know, we, we have meetings uh, regularly and we're, 
working on a number of ways to do this. Um, but uh, it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's a challenge. It's an unbelievable challenge. Um, and so that, I guess the, 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 the benefit of the IFA is that it's a bunch of people with the same goal. And, uh, so as much as I, uh, pull for the individual every now and then you do need a little bit of a collective, yeah. right? Just like, just like football, the, the quarterback can't do it by himself. Right. Running back can't do it. He needs the offensive line, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, to me, that's what the IFA is. It's a bunch of people with uh, the same goal working together and uh, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've had the opportunity to attend a number of the meetings and I've learned a lot from everybody involved. And most, mostly, you know, it's, it's taught me that I'm not crazy (laughs) that, you know, there are like-minded people who want to get creative work as diverse as possible out into the, to the world. And, that that is as i thought and thought i was crazy it is exceedingly difficult to do in a world that you know is seemingly controlled by these by corporations and sort of the profit motive um but maybe that's that's really gone overboard especially as it's as it relates to art you know i I think in, in writing but um again the the book coming out in the next couple weeks is nobody's coming home crime stories by alex cizak um really beautiful book. Uh, I say beauty in the, in the crime fiction sense, um, exceedingly well-written and, um, just so well-crafted. Alec, thanks for joining me on Roughneck Dispatch. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've, I've uh, enjoyed, uh, rambling on about my, <laughs> my various, uh, obsessions and concerns as far as independent fiction goes. Mm-hmm.